Hello and welcome to another episode of Forgotten Cello Music. This is from Traveling Cello. I'm Aaron. Before I get into the episode, I just want to say thanks to those that have been listening. It's much appreciated. Thanks to all who have heeded my call to listen to my podcast episodes. I've seen the numbers increase quite a lot in the last week or two, and it's um, incredibly a feel-good moment. So I really appreciate that. The support has been uh, seen and felt. Please continue to watch uh, my videos and listen to the episodes. In today's episode, it is coming from the book by Joseph Vasilevsky, The Violoncello and Its History. I'll be taking a look at the introduction into the 18th century. The 1700s really was the time when cello started taking off. It was an explosion in uh, music of cellists. Uh, very many prominent cellists came to the fore in various countries, and you'll be seeing that over the course of the next few episodes when you stick around and listen to them. So this episode gives an overview for what is to come in the 1700s. Uh, the music that I include in these episodes, the examples I've taken, um, really uh, exemplify the sound of the era in its prime. I mean, for example, anyone that thinks of the Baroque style generally has Vivaldi and J.S. Bach in mind. In this episode in particular, I'm going to take some Vivaldi uh, not Bach, but I will take Marcello, Benedetto Marcello. Specifically, I'm taking Vivaldi and Marcello because they wrote sonatas for cello. And in that time period, as we will see in later episodes, uh, later on, it's really a, a cello, a solo cello, and a continuo. And a continuo usually consists of a... Inst a two instruments, or even three, that play the bass line. But the bass line is written in something called figured bass, where a chord-making instrument such as a, a therabo or a piano keyboard in this, a harpsichord in this case, along with a cello or a bassoon or something that can sustain some notes, would be playing and making up all of the harmonies to go along with the melody. I will be largely reading the introduction because it's a really good expression of what's happening. It's a cross-section of Europe in the, the few years leading up to the 1700s and then throughout the 1700s. So in the book, this is starting on page 45, The Art of Violin Cello Playing in the 18th Century, the introduction to the 18th century. 
In the 17th century, the violoncello still occupied a very subordinate and modest position during the period mentioned, with very few exceptions. It was employed only as a bass instrument in the orchestra. At the beginning of the 18th century, however, there was already a great change. Uh, for example, Johann Matheson says in his Neu eröffneten Orchestra, which can be translated as the newly opened orchestra, and this appeared in 1713. He says, The prominent violoncello, the bass viol, and the viola da spalla are small bass fiddles, viols, that is, similar to the larger ones with five or six strings on which can be played all kinds of quick things, variations and movements, much more easily than on the larger machines. And the larger ones he means the contrabasso. It is therefore quite conceivable that some time was necessary before the players, who were accustomed to the undivided fingerboard of the cello, that is to say that the viola da gamba had frets on it, all the violas did, were sufficiently confident of a finger technique differing so completely from that of the gamba. They were at first limited to the lower part of the fingerboard, as was the case primarily with the violin. The position of the thumb by means of which the higher and highest positions on the fingerboard could alone be fixed and maintained with certainty could hardly have been known before the beginning of the 18th century. The violoncello at this time, as appears from Matheson's account just mentioned, had sometimes a set of five or even six strings like the gamba. On the five-string instruments, the tuning was as the lower four strings as normal, C, G, D, A in ascending order, and the fifth string, a D, a fourth above the A. Going on, the Abbé Tardieu, already referred to, who played the violoncello, according to Gaber, had the same tuning on his instrument. About the third decade of the last century, those who used five-stringed instruments gave up the highest string, that is, the D. From that time, the four-stringed instrument with its tuning C, G, D, A came very generally into use. The latter was not altogether a novelty. Praetorius mentions it in his Syntagma Musicum as the bass viol de braccio. In Germany, the use of the violoncello as an orchestral instrument ensued later than in Italy though much sooner than in France. For although it had been introduced into the Parisian opera in 1727 by the cellist Battistin, to be mentioned later on, it had already in, been in use since 1680 in the Vienna Hofkapelle. The Saxon Hofkapelle at Dresden next followed by the installation of four violoncellists. Their names are Daniel Hennig, Agostino Antonio de Rossi, Jean-Baptiste José du Aubondel, and Jean-Pierre de Tilloy. As two of these players have French names, it is to be assumed that violoncello had already found representatives in France at the beginning of the 18th century. The example set by Vienna and Dresden was soon imitated also by other German courts. The band of Dukes Charles Ulrich of Holstein-Gottorp affords a case in point. 
As this prince, the future son-in-law of Peter the Great, found himself obliged in 1720 to reside at the Russian imperial court, his private musicians followed him thither, amongst whom there was a cellist. As the gamba enjoyed a great amount of favor in Germany, the introduction of the violoncello was not effected without difficulty, to which indeed the gambists, who thought their pretended rights were thereby infringed, not a little contributed. For in a paper which appeared in 1757 in the French language, and now translated into English, observations on music, etc., it is said, the only bass viol declared war on the cello which won victory, and it was so complete that it is now feared that the famous viol, the incomparable Sicilian, is sold to some inventory at a mediocre price, and some layman luthier does not think about making it into a sign. It was not quite so bad as the last words of the announcement led one to suppose. Even if the violoncello caused the gamba to be quite superfluous in the orchestra, the latter was cultivated as a solo instrument for some time longer, and many of the good old gambas were, in course of time, metamorphosed into cellos and made available for further use, while the more insignificant specimens were destroyed. If they were not required for completing instrumental collections and so preserved from destruction. The art of violin cello playing in the first stages of its development was, as regards the method of treatment, not so much favored as violin playing. To the latter, a definite direction for imitation was early given, as soon indeed as the end of the 17th century by the Roman school founded by Arcangelo Corelli which was soon followed by the foundation of the Paduan and Piedmontese schools. Violoncello playing lacked such classical parent schools. When a few prominent artists of this instrument had brought it into greater consideration, centers were formed by distinguished masters for the study of the cello, which supplied the want of proper schools, about which we shall have more to say farther on. It is easy to understand how it followed that the violoncello was first valued in the land of its birth, that is, in Italy, not only as an orchestral instrument, but also for solo playing. How this important branch of art was there developed, we shall see in the next section. Now, as a little segue into some of the music, because I will largely be playing Italian music. The beginning of the chapter on Italy, Vasilevsky says, Italy has the claim of priority in violoncello as well as violin playing. It was the birthplace of the violin and of the cello, and from thence emanated the artistic executive development of both instruments the first famous Italian cellist of whom we have any notice is Domenico Gabrielli, with the surname Monghino del Violoncello, born in 1640 at Bologna. As I've already said in the previous episode, the types of pieces 
that one played in the Baroque time and before are numerous and varied. You've got the suites, and they could have five movements, six, ten, twelve. I mean, really, as many as you wanted. You just add another dance movement. Duet, uh, bourree, gavotte, uh, nalabande, courant, sarabande, and many more. But there's one structure in particular that has always spoken loud and clear to me at least and I think many musicians it's the Sonata da Chiusa it's a sonata an early form of the sonata in the Baroque time which can be translated as sonata for church or played in the church and customarily the Sonata da Chiesa is a four-movement structure, usually organized slow movement, fast movement, slow movement, and fast movement. Not surprisingly, the first Sonata da Chiesa that most students play, and indeed me too, was a sonata by Antonio Vivaldi, who wrote a good number of sonatas. There's a collection of six that cellists know about, but he wrote at least nine. Marcello, whom you will hear as well, also wrote Sonata da Chiesa, in which the structure is formulated slow, fast, slow, fast. Now, I will be giving excerpts in general, rather than playing the entire thing through. Uh, it is my intent that I, at some point, will play the entire sonata through. Um, but of course, it takes a lot of time, and in the interest of showing a variety of selections from various composers, uh, I necessarily need to pick and choose what I select. The Marcello Sonata that I've chosen is another sonata that a lot of cello students are familiar with. It is a, a sonata in E minor, and usually just the first two movements are learned, whereas the Vivaldi sonata, also in E minor, usually all four of the movements are learned at some point. And all of these sonata da chiesa, and there are many, many, many dozens of examples by all sorts of cellists prominent during that time, uh, as mentioned, uh, there's the v Vivaldi, the sixth Sonata da Chiesa. Marcello wrote six. Uh, Vandini wrote a set of six. Bononcini, Pasqualini, uh, 
the list really goes on and on as far as music and cellists are concerned in this early period of cello history. Now, it's been a long time since I've played music from the classical era, let alone the Baroque era. I took quite a long break, but as I've come back to it in this exploration of the cello's history and going through it systematically as I am now, I've rediscovered its beauty and its charm. There, uh, there were many, many nights that I remember listening enthralled to a recording that I have always enjoyed extremely at the highest levels of enjoyment, if that's a thing. But Christophe Croix would uh, recorded six cello sonatas by Vivaldi, and all of them are just wonderful examples of elegant charm, wit, and also ensemble because he uses the actual basso continual concept where not every basso continual is played by the same instruments. So sometimes you've got the harpsichord and a second cello. Sometimes there's an organ and a second cello. Sometimes there's even a guitar or a therabo, really. And the inventiveness of the Baroque era just comes through crystal clear and in a very elegant, enchanting, enthralling manner. Just to throw it out there, I do have some kind of dream someday to be able to record and play all of the Vivaldi sonatas, and not to mention uh, many other sonatas from this area, era. They're all really wonderful. Well, I, if you have any comments, or if you particularly enjoy this era of music, please let me know, and I, I might even try my best to uh, go for a complete recording of one of the sonatas, or maybe even an entire opus number. In other words, all six, because opus numbers include uh, coming numbers of sixes in the Baroque era. to the end of the episode, remember, you can support me without spending any extra money simply by watching the videos, or listening to these podcast episodes, telling your friends to listen, and if you do feel the inspiration to support me with extra money, uh, that would be fantastic. These episodes take a long time to produce. I would like to be able to spend much more of my energy fine-tuning and making them high quality, but that takes an enormous amount of effort and especially time. And when I'm attempting to get one episode out per week, which I haven't been doing recently, 
because of the time constraints, it it shows. If you would love to hear this podcast increase its level of quality, please consider donating today. Thank you for listening, and see you in another episode. And remember, play more forgotten cello music. Thank you.